Hello, everyone. Welcome to our listeners in the Big Apple from across the U.S. and around the world. I'm Jeff Goodman, broadcasting to you live from my home studio in Harlem, and this is Rediscovering New York. Professionally, I'm a real estate broker with Halstead Real Estate, and I love New York. Rediscovering New York is a weekly program about the history, texture, and vibe of our amazing city. And we do it through interviews with historians, local business owners, nonprofit organizations, preservationists, local musicians and artists, and the occasional elected official. On some shows like tonight, we focus on an individual New York neighborhood, exploring its history and its current energy. What makes that particular New York neighborhood special? Sometimes we host shows about an interesting and vital color of the city and its history that's not focused on one particular neighborhood. Prior episodes have covered topics as diverse and illuminating as American presidents who came from, lived in, or had some interesting history here in the city, about half of them actually. We've talked about the history of women activists and the women's suffrage movement. We've talked about the history of African Americans in the city who have been here as long as the Dutch have been. Uh, and we've also talked about the history of the city's LGBT community and the gay rights movement. We've explored the history of bicycles, which, believe it or not, have been in the Big Apple for more than 200 years, although when they were here, it wasn't called the Big Apple, not yet anyway. And we've even explored some of the city's greatest train stations and bridges. After the broadcast, each show is available on podcast. You can hear us on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and other services. Tonight, we're going back to Brooklyn, the borough of my birth, and also a neighborhood where I used to live once upon a time. It's one of my favorite neighborhoods in the whole city, and I'm talking about Park Slope. Our first guest is a returning uh, regular to Rediscovering New York and the show's special consultant, my friend David Griffin. David's a lifelong architectural enthusiast, providing creative sales-enhancing services for the national real estate community. He's the founder and CEO of Landmark Branding. His clients include architects and design firms, in addition to developers, brokers, and marketing companies. David hosts a very interesting and lovable series called Room at the Top. It's co-hosted with Jennifer Wallace of Nascent Art New York. It's the only ongoing networking series in real estate to feature tours of Manhattan's greatest buildings, and frequently, you guessed it, at the top of those buildings or near the top of those buildings. David's really prolific. His latest blog, Every Building on Fifth, documents every single building on Fifth Avenue. That's every building on Fifth Avenue, listeners, from Washington Square Park right up to where Fifth Avenue ends at the Harlem River in Harlem. David's writing has appeared in Real Estate Weekly, Metropolis, Dwell, and the National Trust Preservation Magazine. David, welcome back to Rediscovering New York. Great to see you, even though we're all virtual. Great to be here, Jeff, or rather here while you are there, but, you know, together in the airwaves of work. Yes, it's amazing what Zoom does for all of us. David is broadcasting from his home studio in Esopus, which is about 75 miles north of New York City. I will say on the other side of the Hudson, not this side of the Hudson, but that's okay. We love you anyway. Uh, <laughs> um, I had to crack a joke, you know. Anyway, um, David, you're a regular, and some of our listeners know you and your background, but some don't. Um, you have a really keen interest in, in architectural history and in New York history in particular. Uh, how did you become interested in the city's architecture and its architectural history? Well, uh, growing up, I was um, one of four children, and we were the first children ever um, uh, to be uh, hired by the New York State Park Service as uh, park interpreters, in this case at the old Bethpage Village Restoration. 
And uh, that, if for listeners who might not be aware of it, is a historic village from the 1850s period that was reconstructed in Nassau County, Long Island, and remains there today as a museum. And what we did was we became costumed interpreters, and we were there for special days and festivals and fairs, uh, wearing period clothing and kind of giving demonstrations of how life was lived during that time period. And uh, I think that really awakened an interest in me for finding out more about the, the history of American buildings in particular. And, you know, as I grew older, I grew more interested in different types of architecture um, and uh, went to Vassar, uh, as did you, and uh, <laughs> majored uh, there in English and Art History with a focus on American architecture from around 1850s through the 1960s, 1970s period. So what I consider sort of proto-modernism of a very early sort through the skyscraper age into international modernism. And, uh, yeah, I I always meant to ask you, David, how, how was it that, that you and your siblings got to have this role? What, was, what precipitated that, and why were you the first ones? Well, during the bicentennial year, my mother made all four of us 1776-style um, costumes. And we visited Old Bethpage for the first time, and my mother thought, well, why not put them into the, the costumes that I made for the bicentennial so that they'll have an idea of being historical figures in a historical area. Uh, we got there and the park people loved it, although we were in fact, I think about 75 years too early for the park itself, which is 1850s as opposed to 1775 area. So uh, that, was, that was sort of ironic. But uh, when my mother realized that they would provide costuming for us that was appropriate for the museum, and they offered to have us come back and sort of portray these characters, uh, she said yes. And we did so. And sometimes we even got to stay over overnight in some of the old houses during some of these weekends that they would be having for festivals. Oh, uh, you know, one thing I never told you when I was at Vassar and I was graduating, um, uh, New York State was uh, organizing a centennial salute to the great Franklin Delano Roosevelt, especially mm -hmm. because in the, it was uh, Ronald Reagan had been president for uh, a year and a half. And uh, the federal government, get this, in the early 80s, only, only an FDR had been dead for 35 years, probably saved American capitalism. But um, the Republican government uh, at the time allotted $100,000, $100,000 to commemorate FDR's birth. New wow. York State, under Hugh Carey, was really insulted. So they got their own celebration and their own commemoration going. And I actually interviewed in Poughkeepsie, right along Route 44, um, uh, to be a docent. And they said, oh, we'll get to dress you all up in uh, like 30s uh, suits and stuff. Uh, oh, okay. um, uh, I didn't get the job, but that's, uh, <laughs> that's another story. Uh, I really wanted it. Um, oh, now, David, onto Park Slope. Um, were there, it's something I, I always like to ask our guests who, who focus on history of neighborhoods. Were there indigenous people living in Park Slope before Europeans settled in the area? Yes. Like most of present-day Brooklyn, Park Slope was originally settled by the Canarsie Indians, a tribe of the Lenape people who give their name to the present-day Brooklyn neighborhood of Canarsie, which is spelled slightly differently and pronounced with a harder R. Um, the roads of these people crisscrossed the area and connected seasonal settlements. Uh, interestingly, these were later widened by the Dutch settlers as so-called ferry roads, leading to ports of transport across the harbor. Um, some of the larger avenues that intercut Brooklyn to this day follow those ancient native roads. So they're, they're much older than they appear to be. And, and what's the Dutch history in the, in, in the area? 
Oh, the first European settlement happens uh, in 1637 or so when one William Kift, who was the director of the Dutch East India Company, purchased almost all of present-day Brooklyn and Queens. The Park Slope area remained farmland for nearly, nearly 200 years afterward. Um, it was really a very, very sparsely settled area during the Dutch colonial period. There might have been only two or three farmsteads in the entire region. And of course, one of the biggest um, um, uh, scenes in the Revolutionary War, in fact, the biggest battle of the whole war, was fought in and around what would become Park Slope. Uh, what happened there? Yes, the region was the site of what is called the Battle of Long Island during the American Revolution. It was a major exchange between American and British forces that saw the gradual rout of the Americans and the subsequent British occupation of both Long Island and Staten Island. Uh, the battle passed site where a lot of the most intense activity took place is preserved in Prospect Park itself, while there's the reconstructed Old Stone House Memorial at present-day 3rd Street and 5th Avenue in Park Slope, which marks the place where a fierce battle occurred between the advancing British and the retreating American forces. Uh, that was one of the very few houses uh, to exist during that time period in that area. What's there now is a reconstruction based on actual rubble that they salvaged from the site in the 1920s and 1930s. So it's an archaeological reconstruction. Wow. And in fact, that's... From around possibly the late 1600s, early 1700s. In fact, wasn't that that the place where the famous Maryland 400 held back uh, a good part of the British forces while uh, uh, the Continental forces retreated to to, to the East River and then to be evacuated? Yes. They managed to save the evacuation, if not the battle itself. And it was probably really for... Many historians do believe that that episode was crucial in the, in the, the survival of the American Revolution, let alone its success. Mm. And there's a great monument in Prospect Park, by the way, which we talked about a few weeks ago when we uh, hosted a show about uh, that included Prospect Park. Mm-hmm. Well, fast forwarding to uh, the next century, um, there was transportation that came through the area beginning at the time when Robert Fulton opened his ferry service across the, uh, the East River. But the area itself, even though there, was, there, were, there were roads going to and from there, remained relatively unde- undeveloped. Yes, there were a great many pools of what's called standing water, uh, still water that collected. It wasn't necessarily spring-fed. So uh, these were things that contributed to general swampiness and to, uh, unfortunately, very high mosquito populations which led in turn to outbreaks of fevers, and it was not really until those were drained away in the 1830s that the area became at all attractive to developers, um, even though stagecoaches and omnibuses were passing through that district at that time. Mm. So in 1834, Brooklyn becomes incorporated as a city, and this allows for the development of a much smaller lots. Um, The farms began to be broken up after the publication of what's called the Commissioner's Plan of 1839, which extended all the way to South Brooklyn. Park Slope remained, at the time, the least populous neighborhood in the new city. Mm. You know, and I w- it was interesting reading that, you know, uh, the famous grid plan of Manhattan of New York uh, was done in 1811, and Brooklyn uh, was its own city, and, and it, it had its own commissioner's plan that divided up the streets, is the way you, you, you just described it. Um, at some point soon thereafter, streetcar service was introduced, wasn't it? Yes. Um, railroad service began making incursions by the second half of the 1830s. 
and uh, there was also the renovation of the nearby Gowanus Creek into a canal, which included draining the marshes and the watershed. Again, this was attractive development. Um, between 1849 and 1860, under a decree by New York legislature, the Gowanus Creek was deepened and walls were put up through it. So we start seeing streetcar traffic, we start seeing canal traffic, um, industry begins to grow in what is now the Gowanus area, and Park Slope begins its sort of long, prosperous march up to what it is today. Um, now, during this time period, one of the largest landowners in the area was a local lawyer and railroad developer named Edwin Clark Litchfield. And he purchased large tracts of what was then farmland and erected a mansion, which still exists, Litchfield Villa, on the east side of the neighborhood in 1857. So this is a couple decades after the, the first fringes of development. Um, during the American Civil War era, Litchfield sold off much of his land to residential developers, and the areas to the west of the mansion become, they start being filled in with row houses at that time. And it was that, this was after the Civil War? It was during the Civil War period, actually. Okay. Um, okay. By, the, by, by 18, uh, the early 1860s, Prospect Park is being laid out just east of Park Slope. And that really kicked off interest uh, in the area as an adjacent location. Um, because, you know, you can live in Central Park, all of a sudden this looked like the, the, definitely one of the, the next best things. And people became very, very uh, interested in kind of um, uh, buying lots that were adjacent to the park in order to develop them for their own use. Mm. So uh, we see the opening of the Brooklyn Bridge in 1883, the arrival of the subway in 1904. All of a sudden, this neighborhood is now a convenient commute for wealthy New Yorkers. And what was known as the Gold Coast began in earnest. Uh, this is primarily Prospect Park West, but it's pretty much all of the blocks um, particularly in the northern part of, of uh, what's now Parksville. And these streets were lined with increasingly substantial townhouses, brownstones, and occasionally freestanding mansions. Um, many of the latter were replaced in the 1920s by Art Deco apartment houses, but some do remain, and the side streets are pretty much nearly intact throughout the district. So you really have a kind of a, a neighborhood in time that you don't in a lot of other areas remarkably consistent. Hmm. All right, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with David Griffin of Landmark Branding. You're listening to Rediscovering New York on talkradio.nyc. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. run or are ready to open your own business? Hi, I'm Jeremiah Fox. I've been operating and opening small business for the last 25 years, and I'm the host of the new show, The Entrepreneurial Web. Tune in every Friday at noon Eastern time for insights and stories on the nuances of running small business right here on Fridays at noon, talkradio.nyc. Are you a conscious co-creator? 
Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? I'm Sam Leibowitz, your Conscious Consultant, and on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc. Talking Alternative Radio, 24 hours a day. We're back, and we're back on Rediscovering New York, our episode in Park Slope in Brooklyn. My first guest is David Griffin of Landmark Branding. David is also the program's special consultant, and it's always a pleasure to have him back on the show. Um, David, let's talk about Landmark Branding for uh, a moment. Um, what are some of the recent projects that, that you've worked on? Well, um, you know, given the, the current situation, I find myself very fortunate to have uh, clients who are uh, very creative uh, for those who are unfamiliar with the, the firm, I provide marketing services for brokers, developers, architects, and designers, other members of the real estate community, um, everything from things such as team bios to listings to VIP events. So we're working, I'm working with several clients to develop sort of virtual tour activities, which is quite, uh, quite interesting. It's a new way of kind of looking at bringing people into historic buildings. Um, we have a, um, a series that I'm developing with Jennifer Wallace that may start in New York. Uh, we're going to be sort of revisiting our greatest hits of Room at the Top and hoping to do this. I can't give too much information away, but in conjunction with a third party who will be making uh, sort of a guided tour that Jennifer and I will give of these amazing buildings available online. So there'll be sort of virtual tours based on photographs and other things that we created during that program. So very happy to be working on that. And uh, yeah, uh, I'm also reopening up my blog, Every Building on Fifth. As you noted, it was a capsule history of every single building on Fifth Avenue, beginning with the Washington Square Arch and ending with the Harlem Armory. And what we're doing is sort of revisiting certain uh, sites along Fifth Avenue, buildings that have been renovated, buildings that have been restored, buildings that have been demolished, new buildings that have been added. And I've taken a number of photographs you know, prior to our current situation where we're going to be able to kind of walk up and down the, the, the avenue a bit and kind of see what the new additions are and how things are kind of evolving there. So, yeah, very excited uh, to, to be having a chance to push forward with many things. And, of course, love to continue appearing on the show uh, always as we And um, if people want to find out about uh, your business and also about some of the upcoming tours, how can they do that? Uh, visit landmarkbranding.com. Uh, the blog is Every Building on Fifth, which is also linked to on the site. And my email address is dgriffin, G R I F F I N, at landmarkbranding.com. On to Park Slope. Um, David, how did the slope, it's known colloquially by those people who know and love it as the slope, how did the name Park Slope become Park Slope? When did, when, when did who came up with it? When did it happen? Uh, it really kind of uh, seemed to come up uh, with the development, of course, of Prospect Park itself. 
So here was the slope that led up to the park, and I don't know that much more thought went into it than that, to be perfectly frank. <laughs> well, some neighborhoods, especially in gentrified neighborhoods, you know, like Borum Hill, right, was downtown Brooklyn until the 60s, until the real estate industry, of which I'm part, uh, you know, decided to uh, rebrand it. And uh, funny uh, story, uh, Dumbo, which actually was an anti-real estate development name <laughs> uh, uh, by the people, by the artists who, who lived there in the 70s and wanted to keep the and wanted to keep development out. Uh, so I was just curious about about Park Slope. Um, I, I think the area was probably na- named that during the period of its greatest uh, development, which would have been the 1870s through the 1900s period. And um, interestingly, by 1890, the U.S. Census listed Park Slope as the richest community in the United States. It was sort of like Beverly Hills, only a slope instead of a hill and a park instead of Beverly. But there you go. Um, the Brooklyn Museum of Art, uh, Brooklyn Museum, rather, which was then known as the Brooklyn Museum of Art, Brooklyn Public Library, Brooklyn Botanical Garden are all uh, developed to the east of Park Slope. And then organizations such as the Montauk Club and the Brooklyn Conservatory of Music were located in Park Slope itself. So these were all sort of cultural institutions that kind of grew a, uh, a very kind of highbrow, uh, deep-pocketed crowd for the time period. You know, one thing I love about the slope compared to other neighborhoods in Brownstone, Brooklyn, is you really see some of the finest examples of some architectural styles. You you see uh, the likes of, of of row houses in the slope that you don't see uh, in other in other neighborhoods. You want to talk about a couple of those? There are they are very substantial buildings. I mean, there's wonderful buildings throughout all of Brooklyn and uh, all of New York City, of course, but. Park Slope is really remarkable in that it has a very high concentration of incredibly intact and rather avant-garde buildings from the late 19th century, early 20th century. And you see styles like um, Queen Anne, for example, Richardsonian Romanesque, which was one of the first American architectural styles, the Beaux-Arts, which is derived from French academic and classical models, neoclassicism, uh, academic Gothic Revival, Mediterranean, Arts and Crafts, American Arts and Crafts. Um, the latter is particularly evident in the blocks that are between Prospect Park West and 8th Avenue on President, Carroll, Montgomery, and Garfield Place, where architects such as C.P.H. Gilbert created rows of extraordinary houses. These buildings are some of the most magnificent in the entire city. I would actually say some of the row houses there are the most sophisticated for their time period in the world. You won't find better in Amsterdam or Brussels. Um, there's elements of Art Nouveau, of Richardsonian's works, uh, things like Craftsman, and also, interestingly enough, the, the Chicago School, which is being developed uh, at the same time period by architects such as Lewis Sullivan. So those blocks in particular, I think, are really kind of a, uh, a gem within, a, within a, a necklace full of gems, as it were, and they really kind of bear closer, close examination. Now, one amazing building uh, is the Chiclet Mansion, which is on 8th Avenue and, and Carroll Street. Um, you know, one of my favorite buildings in the whole city, one of my favorite low-rise buildings uh, is in the Slope. It's the Montauk Club, and it has a bunch of different architectural styles. It doesn't have one. Do you want to talk about the different styles in, the, in, that, in that amazing building? Absolutely. I'm very happy to, as I happen to be a member of the Montauk Club, as you may know. <laughs> and um, I actually run a literary program there as well. Uh, the Montauk Club was based on the Cador in Venice, the Golden House, which is one of the greatest Gothic works of architecture in Italy. Um, and it's really a, quite a remarkable interpretation that also brings in certain Romanesque elements, uh, certain elements that kind of lock it into the brownstone tradition that was associated with Brooklyn. 
Um, there are elements that appear to be drawn from uh, Norwegian architecture. There's a great deal of arts and crafts and Art Nouveau in the interior, uh, neoclassicism. And then it's also remarkable for uh, friezes, statues, and sculpture that depict Native American peoples, the people actually of the Montauk tribe, which is the name for the people of Long Island. And the Montauk Club was built in some ways to kind of commemorate them. During the early 1880s, late 1870s, early 1880s, there was a real sweep of interest in Native Americana because it was the centennial. Uh, Americans were interested in what our history was. And they're like, well, we don't have an ancient history the way Europe does, but wait, the Natives did. And, you know, let's forget the fact that, you know, we didn't treat them very well, but let's go back and, you know, see what they, what they accomplished. And there was um, really sort of a, there were recurring periods of interest in Native American art throughout that period into the 1920s when you see it also influencing Art Deco where they took many of the kind of bold patterns and very strong abstract shapes and colors. So the Montauk Club is kind of almost at the forefront of that. It's a, it really is a fascinating building. Uh, it's a National Historic Landmark, and the interior, um, if and when it's um, open to the public, it's worth checking out if there's ever a chance for you to stick your head in there. It's really, really cool. I love it. Well, and full disclosure to our listeners, I actually lived a block and a half away on President Street, and I have been at the Montauk Club a number of times, uh, occasionally as uh, your grateful guest, David Griffin. Um, let's move a couple of decades beyond the time when the Montauk Club and those incredible, beautiful row houses were built uh, to pass the First World War and when those Art Deco apartment buildings were built. Um, like many neighborhoods in the city, the slope lost some of its luster, and some say a period of decay and decline began. Yes, I mean, the Great Depression really knocked the, the energy out of a lot of the city. Uh, I think that was true of every almost every district, except, you know, the real high-hat ones in and around the Park Avenue and Fifth Avenue corridors. Um, we saw something somewhat similar later in the 20th century in the 1970s, when it appeared that there was kind of this sense of decay everywhere. And... Park Slope, unlike certain other areas in the city, fell very heavily out of fashion, in part because of the amazing architecture that we all love today, was seen as sort of overly whimsical and kind of fantastic and rather grotesque. And people didn't want that. You know, they wanted something modern. They wanted something bright. So people were moving out to the suburbs. Uh, the houses became apartment buildings. The apartment buildings were not well taken care of. The economy in that area of Brooklyn never fully entirely recovered from the Great Depression the way certain other areas of New York City did during the 1950s. Um, there wasn't a lot of new development out there. There weren't necessarily a lot of jobs. Gowanus was not seen as an attractive neighbor in terms of being a polluted industrial canal. So you sort of, you got to a point where it really was kind of seen as a rather dingy area. Um, there were some unfortunate incidents in, in terms of those street crime, which tended to be rather high during that, that period. And also, uh, you know, sort of clashes between gangs in the streets, teenage gangs who kind of identified with one area or the other. And, you know, there was definitely a racial undercurrent to a lot of what was going on, unfortunately, as there was throughout much of America during that time period. Uh, there were also certain incidents that were really just kind of out of the blue tragedies. In December 16, 1960, two airliners collided above Staten Island, killing 134 people in what was, at the time, the worst U.S. aviation disaster in history. One of the airplanes, which was a Douglas DC-8 operated by United Airlines, was actually able to stay airborne for a few miles before crashing near the corner of Sterling Place and 7th Avenue. 
killing everyone on board instantly except for one 11-year-old boy, Stephen Baltz, who unfortunately died of his injuries the following night at the nearby still accident York Methodist Hospital. Six people on the ground were also killed, and there was incredible damage to the entire area. Uh, remarkably, if you go back to that particular intersection now and you look around, you would never think anything had happened there. All of the historic buildings were entirely restored, and what was there before the crash is completely intact. Well, when I lived uh, uh, around the corner from that in the 90s, uh, although you you could still see evidence of of the uh, of the crash, there was there were several lots that hadn't been built. There was like a cornice that obviously had been damaged by by it. Um, David, we're almost out of time. Um, in in the minute or two we have left, uh, I'd like to talk about the brownstone revival movement and how that has contributed to the to the revival of Park Slope as, uh, as a place where people really, really thought it was a beautiful place to live? Well, I mean, in the 1970s, you have a countercultural movement that brings in a new interest in historic architecture. Uh, prior to that, people had thought about uh, colonial buildings, et cetera, and so forth. Houses in Park Slope cost as little as $15,000 at the time. And wow. so people who couldn't afford similar buildings in Manhattan were attracted to what was a relatively convenient commute into Manhattan plus the proximity to Prospect Park. So we still had crime and other things as issues, but today Park Slope is, again, one of the safest, wealthiest, most desirable neighborhoods in all of New York City, let alone Brooklyn. Um, I think the fact that so much of it survived intact was what it came around to save it in the end, that the, the materials were there to work with, the little commercial buildings were there to work with, mom-and-pop stores were still sort of able to be developed along the 7th Avenue, 5th Avenue corridor, and you have a feeling there, I think, of a, of a broader sense of community, even though it is a wealthy neighborhood, than you can in certain other areas where it's, you know, very, very prosperous, but it becomes maybe a little bit more monochromatic in terms of people who live there and the services and the kind of cultural offerings that are visible. When I was living there in the 90s, it was, uh, it, I wouldn't say it was completely gentrified, but it had begun to go have that kind of a transformation. And there was sort of new cool businesses, but it was still funky. And um, um, I had a great time when I lived there. Uh, David yeah. Griffin, thank you so much for, for being our guest on this show about Park Slope. Our first guest has been David Griffin of Landmark Branding. Uh, you can stay in touch with David and read about his work in architecture at www.landmarkbranding.com. Uh, we'll be back in a minute, and when we are back, we're going to be hearing from our second guest, who has started a business in Park Slope. We'll be back Thanks. in a moment. Thanks a lot, Jeff. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network at www.talkingalternative.com. Now, broadcasting 24 hours a day. Talking Alternative. Do you run or are ready to open your own business? Hi, I'm Jeremiah Fox. I've been operating and opening small business for the last 25 years, and I'm the host of the new show, The Entrepreneurial Web. Tune in every Friday at noon Eastern time for insights and stories on the nuances of running small business right here on Fridays at noon, talkradio.nyc. Do you love 
or are you intrigued about New York City and its neighborhoods? I'm Jeff Goodman, host of Rediscovering New York, a weekly show that showcases New York's history and its extraordinary neighborhoods. Every Tuesday live at 7 p.m., we focus on a particular neighborhood and explore its history, its vibe, its feel, and its energy. Tune in live every Tuesday at 7 p.m. on talkradio.nyc. I'm the aptly named host of Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio, big nonprofit ideas for the other 95%. Fundraising, board relations, social media, my guests and I cover everything that small and mid-sized shops struggle with. If you have big dreams and a small budget, you have a home at Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio. Fridays, 1 to 2 Eastern at TalkingAlternative.com. Talking Alternative Radio, 24 hours a day. Support for Rediscovering New York comes from our sponsors, the Mark Myman team, mortgage strategist at Freedom Mortgage. For assistance in any kind of residential mortgage, Mark and his team can be reached at 646-330-4735. And support also comes from the law offices of Thomas Siaka, specializing in wills, estate planning, probate, and inheritance litigation. Tom and his staff can be reached at 212-495-0317. Our show is about New York, especially its neighborhoods and the myriad textures of our amazing city. There's another great show on the air about New York and specifically about the business of real estate. Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco, my friend and colleague at Halstead. Vince's show airs live on Tuesday mornings at 9 a.m. You can hear him on voiceamerica.com and also on podcast. You can like this show on Facebook. And by the way, we do Facebook Live it now. And you can also follow me on Instagram and Twitter. My handles there are Jeff Goodman NYC. If you have comments or questions, or if you'd like to get on our mailing list, please email me, jeff at rediscoveringnewyork.nyc. One other note before we get to our second guest, even though Rediscovering New York is not a show about the real estate business in New York, when I'm not on the air, I am indeed a real estate agent in our amazing city, where I help my clients buy, sell, lease, and rent property. If you or someone you care about is considering a move into, out, or within New York, I would love to help you with all those real estate needs. You can reach me and my team at 646-306-4761. Our second guest is Jose Franco. Jose is the founder, owner, and head juicer at Stoop Juice in Park Slope. He attended SUNY Binghamton School of Management. He's been married 22 years, and he's father to a 15-year-old daughter who has the distinct honor of being smarter than her dad <laughs> since her 11th birthday. I love that. Uh, Jose has over 20 years of coaching elite travel baseball. We're going to ask him about that as well. It's uh, between a 90 and 140-game season. That's a lot of games, listeners. Uh, Jose canvassed for Mike Bloomberg and collected signatures to run for president of the United States in 2020. And he's the author of a free ebook, How to Get Better at Things You Don't Think You're Bad At by 2020, which is this year. Jose, a hearty welcome to Rediscovering New York. 
Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for inviting me to the show. I'm, I'm my, excited. My pleasure. Well, you were a returning guest on Talk Radio Dead NYC. You were uh, on the Entrepreneurial Web with uh, Jeremiah Fox not too long ago. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, ca- I call I called Jeremiah a friend. Don't hold that against me. I certainly don't. I hope our, I'm sure none of our <laughs> listeners do either. Um, Jose, are you originally from New York? I I've been here since I'm one. So the, my, oh, my that's family, a native. Yeah, I've been here since I'm one, Upper West Side. First place we lived was 107th Street between Broadway and Riverside Drive. First place you have another, we lived. Uh, uh, no, 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 sorry, go ahead. I, we we no, have a little delay here with uh, the soup. Yeah. So first, first place my family lived uh, there, then we moved to... 109th in Columbus. That's we, you know, we were first generation immigrants. So it was my grandmother, my mother. Then my mother broke away from my mother and she got a place in the Bronx. And then from the Bronx, uh, the next time I lived outside of the Bronx was when I went to college. And then after I finished Binghamton, I stayed with my brother for a little while. Then I bought a place in Sunset. Then I bought a place in Park Slope. And now we we have a house in Windsor. So so as as soon as I finished Binghamton University, I was after a short hiatus in Queens. I've been in Brooklyn since I, 1995. Well, if I were Staten Islander, I'd have to ask you, what do you prejudice about uh, against Staten Island for? You've lived in every other borough except Staten Island, but uh, I, I've only <laughs> lived in two of them: Brooklyn and Manhattan. But uh huh. So, um, so no, nothing wrong with Staten Island. I sold jewelry in Staten Island a lot. So, well, I have family in Staten Island. My in-laws live in Staten Island, and I actually love Staten Island. Uh, we've had some, uh, a couple of shows about Staten Island too, about its history and about some of uh, the things that a lot of New Yorkers don't know about it. Um, Jose, you have a number of businesses and passions. I want to ask you about them all, uh, also because they're all different from each other, uh, but they also have similarities. Um, you're a baseball coach, you're a life coach, and you also own your own business in, in juicing and, and nutrition. Which, which of these did you do first? Start Stoop Juice, become a life coach, or, or, or coach baseball? I've been, I, the baseball came first prior Prior to those businesses, I sold wholesale jewelry for over 20 years. So because selling jewelry, when you're selling to stores, it's a cyclical business. So pretty much the summers allowed me a flexible schedule so I can really go into the baseball, to, you know, to the point that it was borderline and obsession. So the baseball coaching came first. What is elite travel baseball? How is that different from from regular baseball? Well, elite travel baseball is, from my perspective, you have neighborhood teams. First, the amount of games. For you to commit to playing so many games in the summer, and this is outside of high school seasons that are usually 20, 20 20-something games, the way you get better in anything, whether it's baseball, playing the piano, it's iterations. You need iterations. So for for baseball at a competitive level, especially it's difficult in the Northeast, you need to get iterations. You need to get games in. And then my brand of elite travel baseball, it, it, was, it was geared towards uh, a realistic approach to trying to play D1 baseball, a professional baseball, where kids – 
weren't assured their position. So the season could have started and it could have been July and their kids trying out for the position, like the real world. You're always behind the eight ball. That's how it happens is it sort of creates a very competitive and it, it teaches these kids what to expect. So once they get into D1 or if they're playing professional baseball, they've had those iterations. So it's just, let me just get to work and they, they're ahead of the learning curve. And did your coaching in baseball leave you to a career in life coaching? Well, so, so what happened was when doing the jewelry and the industry shifted and all my relationships pretty much, for me to continue doing jewelry, I would have had to go live outside the country four to five months out of here. And my family planning and where I was with my family, that wasn't going to happen. I mean, I mean, I tried. I was like telling my wife, babe, let me go live in Taiwan five months out of here. That didn't fly. And uh, so what I did was I said, what can I do that I enjoy? It's close to my house. And I can give back but at the same time help me sustain myself. So the life coaching and the hmm. All right, I want to ask you about Stoop Juice, but I'm, we're going to take our next break a little bit earlier. I, we're having a little trouble with your connection, Jose. I'm not sure exactly what it is. So we'll go to our next break. And uh, when we come back, uh, we're going to continue our conversation with Jose Franco, who owns Stoop Juice, which we're going to be speaking with him about when we come back. We'll be back in a minute. Talking Alternative Radio, 24 hours a day. I'm the aptly named host of Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio. Big nonprofit ideas for the other 95%. Fundraising, board relations, social media. My guests and I cover everything that small and mid-sized shops struggle with. If you have big dreams and a small budget, you have a home at Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio. Fridays, 1 to 2 Eastern at TalkingAlternative.com. Are you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? I'm Sam Leibowitz, your Conscious Consultant, and on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc. TalkingAlternative.com We're back. 
to Rediscovering New York and our episode on Park Slope. My second guest is baseball coach, life coach, and owner and chief juicer at Stoop Juice in Park Slope. Welcome back, Jose. When did you decide that you wanted to go into your own retail business? Uh, can you hear me now? How's it yeah, a little better. Yes, good. Okay. So, so it, it was a... Both my wife and I, the, the criteria was uh, let's be close that we can walk from our house. Let's do something that we can be close to our daughter for her school and we can walk from our house within walking distance. So that was the idea. We, we, were, thinking, we were thinking about doing a shop called Stoop where you would sell things you would find in a uh, stoop sale. Ah. And, and that would be good if my wife ran the shop, but that's not something that I, I identified with. But the juice bar came about because I became vegan, and it was how I was eating. And since it, since it was new to me, I was all in. And I'm I'm an extrovert, so my personality lended for that, and we just we went we went in we we that's what we decided to do. You know, I love the name Stoop Juice. I don't know what it was about the slope, but when I lived in the East Village, and now I live in Harlem. In Harlem, we don't have Stoop sales. East Village occasionally, but when I lived in the slope, there was Stoop sales all the time, and I picked yes. up uh, I picked up some good stuff. So even though it's been 25 years since I've lived in the slope, the name it just you know it just it it just kind of brings me back to the neighborhood. Um, how long has how long have you been open? We've been open seven years. The shop's been open seven okay. years. Mm. Let's talk about the Park Slope specifically. Um, describe the vibe of the neighborhood, Jose. What is it that you like about it? it? The best way to describe Park Slope, let's say if you're not from New York, it's everything you would want a community to be. I, I, I think Park Slope, let's say the, in the worst case scenario, Park Slope is somewhat of a bubble because you people for the most part you're, you're, you're going to run into people that on average ha, are college educated and they tend to be a little progressive but from my experience working behind the counter in the shop you also find people that have conservative inklings and there's this nice balance that i find that people can respectfully disagree that's been my experience uh you have People that look like me, people that look like you, people, we come in all shapes and colors. And what happens is sometimes the, what you see uh, as the billing or what you see as the exterior, sometimes you're pleasantly surprised or underwhelmed once you hear them talk. So one of the things you learn living in Park Slope is to take time and to be in the moment and to see who it is that you're talking because sometimes you be surprised the don't go by the gruff because there, there's a lot of diamonds in the rough walking around in park slope hmm. that's my 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 take of the neighborhood do you think the slope has changed since you first opened stoop juice seven years ago jose I, I think my history with Park Slope, I, I've been coming down to Park Slope 
that's uh, to play baseball. I used to come from the Bronx to play travel baseball at, at parade grounds. And I so so I'm looking from the 80s. So I saw I saw the end of the the, the crack era, as people like to label it. And then I saw the the development and the expansion. I think there's two communities because I'm in what would be considered South Slope. I'm on 15th Street. There's two communities. There's some individuals live in rent control apartments and they may be second, third generation. And their reality is their reality based on what they expose themselves to. Then there's the uh, we're from Vermont. We love it here. Uh, uh, I'm from I'm from Texas, and my my I I came to stay here because my my daughter and my son started a family. And what's common in close to the shop in the, the blocks around 15th Street and Seventh Avenue is we have a lot of single women. They, they that's I think Park Slope grades well in the types of neighborhood that people from outside of New York find appealing to for a single woman or a recently graduated uh, single woman to come live with, that they feel the perceived notion that they're in a safe neighborhood. That's one of the things you can say about South Slope, Park Slope in particular. Mm. Well, um, when I, I lived in Borum Hill in the 80s and uh, moved to the Slope in the 90s, and in those days, uh, Park Slope was very much an LGBT-ish neighborhood. Uh, mm-hmm. There were a lot of gay men, a lot of a lot of women, and um, uh, there was a very cool vibe for us in those days. Uh, in fact, there was uh, it doesn't exist anymore, but there was uh, an organization I belonged to called GFN, Gay Friends and Neighbors Around Prospect Park. Uh, it seems like almost an eternity ago now. Um, is there anything, I mean, you've lived in a lot of places, Jose. You grew up on the Upper West Side. You lived in the Bronx. You even lived in Queens for a bit before you moved to Brooklyn. Um, is there anything that you feel makes the slope unique compared to the other neighborhoods where you've lived? Uh, this, is, this, is, this is something that uh, I know in the strip of where my shop is, for the most part, uh, a large percentage of the business owners live close by. That's that's within the, the four or five block vicinity of the businesses and the people that I know that are in business. So whereas I remember living, when I lived in the city, there were shopkeepers, but it was more transient. Like they were coming from somewhere else. Either they were coming from Jersey, whatnot. In the slope, at least, in, in my strip, my area, for example, there's a bar right across the street from me that's called American Cheese. The owner lives right upstairs. He he can actually I don't I don't know if they'll allow him. He can actually put a fire pole from his apartment and slide it right into the bar, which would be awesome. If he does that, I should get the credit. And the the shop to the left of me, he it's a a. Uh, Pakistani owner. He lives in McDonald Avenue by the Pakistani community. So that's that's common. The the haircutting place and the, the every single haircutting place close to me, for the exception of one, and there's like six, seven. They all live in the neighborhood, and there's mm. something to say because they're not only doing business there, but their kids are going to school 
where and and the same was the case to me. My daughter went to New Voices, which was on 20th Street. And after school, she can just show up and be in my shop until my wife picked her up. So that that from my experience, that's that's one of the things I see about Park Slope. And look at Jeremiah. Look at Jeremiah. Jeremiah is the epitome. He's in Windsor, but he's all over the place. But he doesn't he doesn't need a car. He he doesn't even need a bicycle. He can do it on a unicycle because everything is so close. He has a unicycle? <laughs> I didn't no. know that. <laughs> oh, no, he, he doesn't okay. do <laughs> He's a man of many talents. I was going to, next time I talked to him, I was going to say, I didn't know you rode a, a unicycle, <laughs> but <laughs> now I'm not going to do that. <laughs> well, I want to ask you about your business and about your customers. Um, unfortunately, uh, your business is one of the many that's now closed during the, during the present health crisis and, and is not open. Um, mm-hmm. When your business is open, I'm sure most of your customers come, come from the neighborhood. Do you know if you get people who actually come to see you from outside the neighborhood who say, I'm, you know, I've taken the, uh, the F train right to Prospect Park West and 15th Street to get out and to, and to, and to come to Stoop Juice? Yeah, well, that's, that's part of my, the, the POP, that's part of the data that you can get from the point of purchase. And we, we get a nice influx of people from Sunset Park we get from Borough Park, especially we're known for having uh, 100% organic produce, juice and vegetables. So we, we, we get a huge contingencies from uh, the Hasida community. They come in and, you know, is it Pave? Uh, and we get people from the city. We get, you know, what's an attraction? Greenwood Cemetery, it's a, it's a, for, for whatever reason, I, I met two types of people that visit Greenwood. There's the, 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 we went, we came to Brooklyn for the day trip. So they do the park, they do Greenwood and everything. And then I met a group from Salem, Massachusetts. That's right. Witches. And they, they dress Gothic and they had this thing. They would go they they go to the circuit that they go to different cemeteries and Greenwood is one of them. And they would stop in, get a juice and I would see them. You know, I, I was there seven years, my shop's there seven years. So after a while, I remember some of these faces and I'm like, Hey, you uh. <laughs> And to our listeners, I, uh, Greenwood Cemetery is one of the most extraordinary cemeteries in the city. It's actually older than Prospect and Central Parks. They're incredible mausoleums, and it's actually bigger than Prospect Park. I've been there a number of times, um, sadly for some funerals, but it's a it's a it, it's it's an extraordinary place to visit. Um, Jose, as a business owner, is there anything that you struggle with in Park Slope? Struggle with in Park? I think I think it's not. It's not just in Park Slope. I think it's the struggle of every single business owner. It's, it's, we go into business hoping things to be a certain way. And then once you're in business, you have the reality of how things are. So sometimes it could be, you know, an optimistic projection. If you turn around, you have this optimistic projection. But you have to live within the confines of the realities of your demographics and what you do. So that that that's how that 
that works out. But for the most part, nothing too crazy. Hmm. Well, I have one more question um, because we're almost out of time. Um, do you see yourself opening up another business in the slope? And if you do, what kind would it be? If right now, you know, it's a pandemic, people, and I well, I, not this moment, but you know, when no, uh, you know when things. If, I would, I would, I would do another juice bar. I would do another juice bar. I would do also something. One of the things that I've noticed, there's a lot of this after school programs that they do with science and everything. I would consider with with my wife's blessing, whose background is in education, something with a baseball theme. I would consider that. Oh, wow. And actually, since the people play a lot of baseball in, in, park, in the park in the summertime, that would be actually a really um, uh, a synergistic theme. Uh, Jose, thank you so much for, for your time and being on the show. Um, our second guest on this episode of Park Slope has been Jose Franco. Jose is a life coach. He's a baseball coach, and he's the founder and head juicer at Stoop Juice. Uh, the website is www.stoopjuice.com. Jose, thanks so much for being on the show. If you have comments or questions about Rediscovering New York, or if you'd like to get on our mailing list, please email me, jeff at rediscoveringnewyork.nyc. You can like us on Facebook and follow me on Instagram and Twitter. My handles there are Jeff Goodman NYC. Once again, I'd like to thank our sponsors, the Mark Myman team, mortgage strategist at Freedom Mortgage, and the law offices of Tom Siaka, specializing in wills, estate planning, probate, and inheritance litigation. One more thing before we sign off. I'm Jeff Goodman, a real estate agent in Halstead in New York City, and I also work in Park Slope. And whether you're selling, buying, leasing, or renting, my team and I provide the best service and expertise in New York City real estate. To help you with your real estate needs, you can reach us at 646-306-4761. Once again, I'd like to thank our guests this evening, David Griffin and Jose Franco. Our producer is Ralph Storier. Our engineer is Sam Leibowitz. Our special consultant is David Griffin of Landmark Branding, who was the first guest this evening. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Alternative Radio, 24 hours a day. Do you run or are ready to open your own business? Hi, I'm Jeremiah Fox. I've been operating and opening small business for the last 25 years, and I'm the host of the new show, The Entrepreneurial Web. Tune in every Friday at noon Eastern time for insights and stories on the nuances of running small business right here on Fridays at noon, talkradio.nyc. I'm the aptly named host of Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio, big nonprofit ideas for the other 95%. Fundraising, board relations, social media, my guests and I cover everything that small and mid-sized shops struggle with. If you have big dreams and a small budget, you have a home at Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio. Fridays, 1 to 2 Eastern at TalkingAlternative.com. Hey, all you crazy listeners, looking to boost your business? 
Why not advertise on Talking Alternative with very reasonable rates? Interested? Simply email at info at talkingalternative.com. Are you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? I'm Sam Leibowitz, your Conscious Consultant. And on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network at www.talkingalternative.com. Now, broadcasting 24 hours a day. Talking Alternative. Do you love or are you intrigued about New York City and its neighborhoods? I'm Jeff Goodman, host of Rediscovering New York, a weekly show that showcases New York's history and its extraordinary neighborhoods. Every Tuesday live at 7 p.m., we focus on a particular neighborhood and explore its history, its vibe, its feel, and its energy. Tune in live every Tuesday at 7 p.m. on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. 